This episode of Local Knowledge is presented by ADP. Golf and business have a lot in common. With the right approach, you put yourself on the path to success. And while both can be unpredictable at times, having the right partners by your side makes all the difference. At ADP, we use data-driven insights to design HR and payroll solutions to help you and your business work better, smarter, and more efficiently, so you can think beyond today and have more success tomorrow. ADP, always designing for people. A couple weeks ago on the show, we were talking about the player rebellion against Dean Beeman on the PGA Tour. Jack Nicklaus was a key figure in that. And I spoke briefly about Nicklaus, how when he was in college, as late as 1961, he had this idea that he was going to be a lifetime amateur. Just like Bobby Jones, he was never going to turn pro. It's one of those weird little details that sticks with me. And it was surprising to me because it happened so late in history. There's no other sport I can think of where in 1961 something like that would even be a possibility, would even be conceived of by a player. In fact, most other sports were decades past that. Obviously, Nicholas did turn pro, but the reason I bring it up now is because when we talk about Shoal Creek Golf and Country Club, which we're going to do today, it's a course outside Birmingham, Alabama, that refused to admit black members and was essentially forced to do so because they were hosting the PGA Championship. When we talk about this course, you know, the racism, the racial reckoning, none of that is surprising. That happened everywhere in American society, in every aspect of life, certainly in every sport. What's surprising is that it happened in the year 1990. Come on, Uncle Phil, this is the 90s, man. Man, it's the 90s. It's hammer time. This is the 90s, the 1990s in point of fact. Does your girlfriend have a girlfriend? Hey, it's the 90s. I don't know about you, but when I think of 1990... First of all, it's weird to me that it's now 33 years ago. I'm not going to go too far down that line because we'll start contemplating our mortality and feeling old and all that. But I will say that 1990 seems late in the day to be dealing with issues of racial segregation in the sport. In the last half of the second inning, Robinson gets the first hit off four. You know, Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in baseball in 1947. It's not a direct comparison by any means. There's quite a lot that makes it different, actually, but... Still, 1990 is almost in the 21st century. That is eye-opening. And this is another example where golf seems behind the times in a certain way. In this case, it's a way that nobody would be proud of today. In other cases, it lends it a kind of old-school nostalgic character. But it's always just lagging a little bit, and it's part of what makes it such an interesting institution. Interesting good, and sometimes not so good. The other really fascinating element of this for me is that the reason things were pushed to the brink with Shoal Creek is not because of some big activist movement. It became that to some extent, but at first this was not on anybody's radar. Shoal Creek hosted the PGA Championship in 1984. They had the USAM in 86. Nobody said a peep then. And if you look at organizations like the NAACP or the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, they were not focused on golf at all. In the Birmingham area at the time, there were about 6,000 members of private country clubs. Two of those 6,000 were black. Now, remember, this is in a city where the population is basically split 50-50 down racial lines. But to some extent, it wasn't on the radar of the black community. And that wasn't because these were private clubs, by the way. You know, there wasn't the idea that, well, they make their own rules. We can't do anything about it. 
It may have shielded them to some extent, but you look at other private institutions, the Kiwanis, the Rotary Clubs in Birmingham, along with some private dining clubs, they had been integrated pretty much against their will in the 80s in Birmingham. So it wasn't like you got a free pass if you were a private club. But it does seem like you almost got a free pass if you were a private golf club. There's a quote in 1990 from a man named Earl Schinhoster, who is a regional leader of the NAACP in the Atlanta area. By the way, the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, if you didn't know that, uh, this was in the Washington Post, and here's what Schinhoster had to say. Quote, Golf is not one of the areas that people pay a lot of attention to. It's a class thing. We gave more deference to people carrying out their private wishes. As blacks began to move into certain circles, and particularly into the business arena, it began to affect more people, and it became a public issue. End quote. So you get the sense that in the wider ongoing fight for racial equality, including in private organizations, for a long time, nobody pays attention to golf. And to some extent, it's because black people are massively underrepresented in the sport due to social, cultural, economic factors. And it's not something that's addressed very often, if at all. And it's easy to get hung up in the southernness of this, particularly Birmingham. If you know anything about the civil rights movement, this is a massive city in that history, pretty much as big as it gets. It was one of these stops for the famous Freedom Riders in 1961. That's where students rode interstate buses across the South. They were violently beaten by mobs at several stops, including Birmingham. In fact, in Birmingham, the violence was organized by the police. They were attacked with baseball bats, iron pipes, bicycle chains. Many were hospitalized. It was a miracle none of them were killed. Then a couple years later, you had the Birmingham campaign, which started in 1963, led by Martin Luther King Jr., among other leaders in the SCLC. King called it, Birmingham, the most segregated city in the country. Here you had boycotts, sit-ins, marches, voter registration drives. The idea was to provoke arrests, call national attention to the inequality. They brought in students and even children to increase the numbers. And you might know the name Bull Connor. He was the commissioner of public safety in Birmingham. And his idea, one of many, was to turn high-pressure water hoses and attack dogs on the mostly nonviolent protesters, including children. There are a lot of famous and pretty disturbing photographs of that. Even worse was a bombing at the 16th Street Baptist Church, which was a frequent meeting place for activists. This bomb killed four little black girls who were playing outside. And that was the work of members of the Ku Klux Klan. And of course, going back to Bull Connor, it won't surprise you to know he was also the one who organized and permitted the attacks on the Freedom Riders. But in terms of the outcomes of the civil rights action, these were incredibly successful campaigns that made the name of people like Martin Luther King, John Lewis, their reputation. Martin Luther King was thrown in jail at one point. If you've heard of the letter from the Birmingham jail, this is when and where it happened. And it led to desegregation in the city. Bull Connor lost his job, and it kind of showed the nonviolent model for how the entire civil rights campaign was going to work. And eventually, those leaps forward were enshrined by the unlikely figure of Lyndon B. Johnson in the Civil Rights Act. And that's obviously not the end of the story, but it was an unqualified success in terms of forcing change, and a lot of it happened in Birmingham. So that background is obviously important as we consider what happened 30 years later at Shoal Creek in the same city. But word of caution, when we talk about the southern side of things, let's provide a bit of context here. There was a survey by the Charlotte Observer in 1990 that found, guess what? 
17 clubs that host PGA Tour events at the time have all-white memberships. And a USGA official at the time gave a conservative estimate that three of every four private clubs in America had, quote, practices similar to Shoal Creek. These were not all in the South, not by a long shot. So let's not make the mistake of thinking this is just a Southern problem because that's not true. So we get back to the question of why now? Why did it happen now? Why, when Shoal Creek hosted a major six years earlier, why, when the PGA Tour is rife with white-only clubs as host sites, same with clubs that host PGA Championships, U.S. Open, same, by the way, with Augusta National, why does it come to the forefront now? There are two answers here. There is the broad answer hinted at by Earl Schinhoster in that earlier quote from the Washington Post, which is that, you know, things are starting to change. Black people are moving into different social circles. This is going to start becoming more and more of an issue. And in that sense, there's a certain inevitability behind it. I mean, they didn't know it at the time, but let's remember the greatest golfer ever was six years from turning professional. He happened to be black. Can you imagine if things hadn't already kicked into gear? Well, they probably would have by then, right? But then there's the small-scale answer, the precipitating event, separate to some degree from broader cultural trends that led to all this scrutiny, in particular at Shoal Creek, and led to this incredible standoff. Well, that happened because somebody opened his mouth. That someone was a man named Hall W. Thompson. Thompson was an Air Force veteran. He had been a caddy as a kid growing up in Tennessee, made his wealth by founding the Thompson Tractor Company, became an Augusta National member in 1974, and he had this long-standing dream of building his own golf course. One day at his company, a psychologist they had hired happened to ask him, you know, what is your unfulfilled ambition? And he mentioned the golf course, and the guy said, why don't you do it? And then the guy kept saying, why don't you do it all the time, every month? So he started thinking about it more. Finally, Thompson's wife said the same thing. Well, you might as well do it if you're going to keep talking about it. And so he enlisted Jack Nicholas. Together, they built Shoal Creek. In the words of a feature by Adam Shupak in Golf Week, Shoal Creek was, quote, cradled in the lap of Oak and Double Oak Mountains at the southern end of the Appalachians, just 14 miles south of Birmingham. Of course, has a beautiful red brick clubhouse. It opened in 1977, which is another kind of interesting feature about the story. You think of a course that's going to keep black people out, and you think of something old and full of the old traditions, but not this one. This was pretty recent. Within seven years, because of Thompson's connections and the strength of the course, they landed the PGA Championship. And as you're reading this portrait of Thompson, you might be getting the sense of a you know, self-made guy who dreams big. The word on him is that, to some extent, the community loved him, at least the white community. He was a civic-minded guy. He would send junior players to Augusta to watch a practice round at the Masters every year. And when he hosted the PGA in 84, Lee Trevino won. It was this huge financial success. Shupak says it was the most successful ever. And the PGA of America said, we're coming back soon, and soon to them was 1990. But, you know, the butt was coming. There was another side to Thompson. And it just so happened to come out in the summer of 1990 in June. Remember, this was at the time when the PGA Championship was in August, not May like it is this year. So it's a couple months before the tournament. And it happens during an interview with the Birmingham Post-Herald and a 29-year-old woman, a reporter named Joan Mazzolini. Thompson is 67 at this point in the story. She met with him in his office at Shoal Creek, and she was working on a multi-part story about what Sports Illustrated called exclusionary practices in Birmingham private clubs. 
still going on at the time. And the city council in particular had earmarked $1,500 for an ad in the program at the PGA Championship. And a black city councilman proposed that they withdraw it because there are no black members at Shoal Creek. They're discriminatory. They have 525 members. Zero of them are black. Only black face you're going to see at the club are caddies or hired staff. And in fact, it was quietly discouraged, according to some reports, for any member even to bring a black man onto the grounds. So even if this kind of stuff was unwritten, it was pretty comprehensive. So Mazzolini sat with Thompson for an hour and a half, asked him about a lot of different things, but at some point brought up the city council issue. Thompson could have answered that or not answered it in a thousand different ways that would have probably extinguished the story or at least kept it out of national news. But instead he said, quote, that's just not done in Birmingham, Alabama. And that wasn't all he said. He went on said, we have the right to associate or not to associate with whomever we choose. The country club is our home, and we pick and choose who we want. And then he threw down the big one when he said he told her they had Lebanese, they had Italians, they had Jews, they had women. And he said, quote, I think we've said we don't discriminate in every other area except the blacks, end quote. Well, as you might imagine, that did not go over well. That quote spread like wildfire across Birmingham, then all of Alabama, then across the whole country and the whole Gulf world. It drew the attention of the NAACP and especially of the SCLC, and there was immediate pressure put on the PGA of America and on Shoal Creek itself. And at this point, because of those comments, there's no going back. And when we say no going back, we don't just mean in this isolated case for this one major event at this one major club. But because of his comment, it opened up a Pandora's box, and all of a sudden, everything was under the spotlight. Talk about the, you know, the 17 clubs on the PGA Tour, 75% of all private clubs have this stuff. Again, this was 1990. It could no longer be ignored. It could no longer be swept under the rug. Once the genie is out, it's really out. This fundamental part of high-level golf that was just sort of shunted off into a corner, the family secret that nobody talks about, well, the secret's out. We talked about Bull Connor earlier, the police commissioner and hardcore anti-segregationist who made such a name for himself in Birmingham. John F. Kennedy once said of him in a kind of ironic quote, he said, the civil rights movement should thank God for Bull Connor. He's helped it as much as Abraham Lincoln. Well, I'm certainly not comparing Hall Thompson to Bull Connor in kind, but I am saying there's a common theme there which is this idea that an overreaction on one side can be helpful to the other side. So, in other words, if you're somebody who wants equality and inclusion in private golf, who wants to desegregate these country clubs and these places where these massive tournaments, these major tournaments are being held, Hall Thompson just handed you a gift on a silver platter because now the issue is out of the shadows. It's front and center. And there's really only one way it can go. Jerry Tardy, writing in the September 1990 issue of Golf Digest, put it best when he wrote, quote, In a game that prides itself on honesty, it is amazing sometimes the effect of a bold, honest statement. End quote. And the process that Thompson started inadvertently that June day in 1990 is going to reverberate all around the golf world. It's going to touch everything. And in the words of the black singer Sam Cooke from a song he wrote in 1963, the same year that Martin Luther King Jr. was getting thrown in jail in Birmingham, the change is going to come. come. Oh, yes, it will. It's been too hard.
I'm Shane Ryan. This is Local Knowledge. You heard me mention Adam Shupak. His name has come up here before. He wrote a feature on Shoal Creek and more specifically on a man named Pat Riley, who we're going to get to momentarily. But this was such a big deal and recent enough that there are a lot of good sources here. Jerry Tardy, as I mentioned, right in the pages of Golf Digest, wrote some excellent stuff on it. Jaime Diaz, who used to work for Golf Digest, wrote a few special articles for the New York Times. Washington Post covered it, Sports Illustrated. There are a lot of accounts to draw from here. So, Hall Thompson says these things, which are incredibly incendiary, brings up some really bad memories for the people of Birmingham and paints the city in a way it does not want to be seen. And that's not just for the black citizens, by the way. That's for the whites, too. Again, this is 1990. Whatever feelings are going on behind closed doors, there's not a lot of eagerness to go back in time or to be seen as backwards and racist by the larger country. There's some obvious trauma there just on a civic level, not to mention, obviously, the personal level. And I think that's a point worth making right off the bat. Hall Thompson is starting a fight here that he has lost immediately. To some degree, you can say, oh, that's hindsight. Maybe the PJ of America could have rolled over. I think by the time 1990 comes around, the cultural climate is so changed that there's only one way this can go. But if you're going to argue against me, you might bring up the example, the parallel example of Augusta National. Ten years later, they have the Martha Burke protests and they wouldn't accept a woman member. But the difference with Augusta National is that they own their tournament. The Masters is theirs. And it has a lot of historical power, right? And with that comes a degree of autonomy and the ability to say, basically, screw you, our rules are our rules. And that let them at least drag their feet for a couple years before admitting a woman, and they could try to pretend it wasn't Martha Burke that forced the issue. We all know it was, and I don't think anyone was really fooled. But, again, they could delay, and they had a certain amount of power there. Shoal Creek doesn't have this luxury. They are invited to host the PGA Championship, by the PGA of America. This is not their tournament. They do a great job hosting when they did in 84, but there are a lot of clubs who can host the tournament. And the PGA of America is a public-facing institution. They are susceptible to pressure, particularly when they find that they're going to be associated with what is perceived nationally as racism. That is not palatable to them. So the minute this story gets big, again, it's my opinion, but I think the outcome has been effectively decided. And you can see right away the next day the outcry is so significant that the Shoal Creek board... And remember, Hall Thompson's the founder and he's still got a lot of power, but he's not the only decision maker. The board writes this, quote, clarification in which they say, no, they don't restrict membership based on sex, creed, religion, or race. As you can imagine, that was not very convincing to anybody. A week later, Thompson gave an apology, but within that apology said that he had been quoted out of context. So, you know, when you hear that today, people saying they're quoted out of context, know that it's been a PR tactic that's been used for a long time. Very difficult to conceive how the quote I read before is out of context, but that's the line he's taking. And again, not many people are buying it, obviously. Jack Nicholas did support him. He told the AP, quote, Hall Thompson is the last thing I know in the world from being a racist person. William Blue, who is the LPGA president, said something similar. He said, we'd never call him a racist, but... Other people had different ideas, and one of them was Abraham Woods, who was president of the SCLC in the Birmingham chapter. He said, quote, The impression I have always received of Mr. Thompson is that he was an out-and-out racist. End quote. Former editor of the Post-Herald, the paper that outed this, went on record as saying that Thompson was a big player on the executive committee that fought to keep black people out of the Rotary Club in the 80s. 
The Reverend Joseph Lowry is the president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC. We talked about Abraham Woods before. He was the president of the Birmingham chapter. Lowry is the president of the whole thing. He co-founded it with Martin Luther King Jr. To show you what a major figure he was, if you hadn't heard of him before, he's the guy who swore Barack Obama into office. He is going to be one of the major players here. And what he says in response, I thought was very interesting, the way he phrased it. He said, quote, This honest man, Mr. Thompson, has exposed the sophisticated layer of deceit and hypocrisy that veils the racism that still exists in our society today. I like that because it's saying, you know, we know this guy was telling the truth. He was saying the thing you're not supposed to say, and he outed you. We already knew, but now we really know. He went on, quote, golf is deceptive because it seems like only plush clubhouses and green fairways. It looks very decent. But this blatant admission that we don't want black folks uncovered a hidden agenda that really isn't hidden anymore. End quote. And he said one more thing that I think is very important, if not unexpected. He said, quote, to cooperate with evil is to affirm it. That means the practical implication of Lowry saying that is that we're not just mad at what Thompson said, but we are going to bring pressure down on anybody who collaborates with this guy. So now this has become big enough that all eyes are turning to the PGA of America. Remember, this all starts in late June. The date for the PGA that year is August 9th through 12th. So they don't have a ton of time to respond, and it's about to get very intense because this is a major curveball to throw in the lead up to an event that takes an awful lot of work to run to begin with, even without this controversy. This is where Pat Riley comes in. I want to be involved in unions. You can see I act on the floor. I mean, I'm, I'm always for the little guy. I mean, I'm never for the, you're on top, look out, I'm after you. <laughs> Riley is the president of the PGA of America at that time. Not to be confused with the basketball coach, right? But if you don't know this structurally about the PGA of America, the president served very short two-year terms. The system now is that they come into the pipeline by being secretary, then vice president, and then finally president. And there, I think they're always professionals, PGA members. Some of them, like Susie Whaley, the last president, were strong players and teaching pros. Others, like Paul Levy, who came before her, were involved in administration and management a little bit more. But they're all members, they're all in the industry, and they don't serve for very long. So when you look at someone like Riley, it's just sort of his luck if you want to call it luck, that he happens to be serving his term when all of this happens. And he's quite a guy to have at the helm at that point. So Riley is from Pennsylvania. He's an athlete. There's a story from his high school years that Chupac tells in his story where Riley's team was on the road for a playoff basketball game and they stopped in a town north of Pittsburgh, deep in coal and iron country, and they all went to a restaurant for dinner. And he noticed that three of his teammates, his black teammates, aren't eating. So he goes to find out why. They tell him, you know why. So then he goes to the owner, asks what's going on. And the owners say, we don't serve black people. But they didn't say black people. You can imagine what the man said instead. So Riley, who was a junior in high school, he wasn't even a starter on his team. He says, nobody's paying you until everybody's fed. The owner wouldn't budge, and so they all left. But that's the kind of guy he was, even as a teenager, standing up for his teammates, having a sense of you know racial consciousness and all that and that story is going to become important in what happens so keep it in mind Riley was from humble beginnings his mother was a dishwasher his father was a machinist and an amateur boxer the man who succeeded him as president of the PGA Dick Smith who grew up in similar circumstances in New Jersey and was really good friends with Riley once said quote neither of our families had two nickels to rub together one of our favorite sayings was never forget where you came from 
It's part of what made Pat qualified to deal with all of that mess. End quote. Riley got into golf as a kid by caddying. He became captain of the golf team at Penn State when he went to college. Married a Protestant woman, which was a big deal at the time with his Irish Catholic family, probably with hers too. Served in the Marines for four years, had four kids, and became a golf pro in California. Now, he was incredibly hardworking, ambitious within his sphere, and very loyal too. There's another story. Shupak tells that he gave a 14-year-old kid a job as a bag boy because his father begged him to. That kid grew up to become Tiger Woods' right-hand man. His name was Rob McNamara. And it was Riley who was there for him, helping out at every step of his career, all the way until he became quite a powerful figure in golf. Riley became the PGA section president in Southern California, which, you know, puts you pretty well on the track, potentially, to being the president. And in 1972, he became the head pro at Annandale Golf Club in Pasadena. And now this is where things get complicated. And if you were starting to see this story building up, as you know, this avowed anti-racist happens to be president of the PGA and he's going to take on the Alabama racists and defeat them. Well, guess what? Annandale Country Club, where he works, while he's president of the PGA of America, he's going to work there until 2002. They don't have any black members either. No minority members, no female members. And then the fallout to what happens at Shoal Creek, Annandale, where Pat Riley works, actually withdraws from hosting the 1993 U.S. Women's Amateur because, quote, the waiting list for membership in Annandale would put us in a position in 1993 as a club that we wouldn't have a minority member. And they made that statement in 1991. They were not willing to get a minority member in within two years to host this tournament. That shows their values, doesn't it? And in that LA Times story, making that announcement about 1993, there is this excerpt. Quote, Pat Riley, head professional in Annandale, was president of the PJ of America during the Shoal Creek incident. He was unavailable Wednesday, end quote. Yeah, I bet he was. Now, you could argue, okay, look, Riley wasn't in charge at Annandale. He was the pro. He answered to the board. He didn't have the juice to change things the way he did as president of the PGA, which is fine. There may be some truth there, but hey, he didn't have to work there, right? If these racial ideals were so important to him, he didn't have to take a job there, but he did. And this is not to condemn him in any way. But just to show that in history, there are always these complications, aren't there? You're not getting a clean good versus evil narrative called the Thomas Jefferson rule. And it also shows how pervasive racial discrimination is in the world of private golf. Nobody's hands are clean, whether you're in the deep south of Alabama or if you are in the supposed mecca of American liberalism, Southern California. Now, I can't resist thinking, you know, what if this had happened today? If you were Hall Thompson's PR man at Shoal Creek and you wanted to fight this, wouldn't you be going all out on the story? I would. You'd say you'd say something like, you know, how interesting that Pat Riley talks such a big game about racial equality and all this stuff, and he works at a club in California with no minority members. This guy's a hypocrite. He has no right to tell us what to do. And, you know, imagine Twitter. Imagine that kind of stuff if it happened now. But it kind of seems like Riley got a bit of a pass on all that. This is the pre-internet age. Information is not traveling quite as fast. Maybe nobody picked it up. Or maybe if they did, they just kind of decided not to run with it. It wasn't the biggest issue. And by the way, to complicate matters further, the PGA of America is also not free of a racist history, pretty much like any other institution in America. But again, as with many things in the golf world, it lasts kind of an embarrassingly long time. A New York Times story reported 
that they had a Caucasian-only clause in the bylaws as late as 1961. And even a year later, in 62, they moved a tournament from California to Pennsylvania. And the reason was to avoid a legal challenge based on the fact that they wouldn't make Charlie Sifford, who was a black golfer, they wouldn't make him a full member. So now it's 30 years later, things have obviously changed, but that is an important footnote here, too. In any case, Riley, to his credit, is going to be a fighter here as it pertains to Shoal Creek. So pretty quickly in the aftermath of Hall Thompson making these comments, the NAACP and the SCLC are announcing plans to picket the club during the tournament, which is a nightmare scenario for the PGA of America. And they got on top of things relatively quickly, but not quickly enough for the sponsors because in early July, as this thing grows and becomes national news and even international news, IBM was the first company to say to ESPN and NBC, we are not buying time on your network for this tournament. Their quote was very similar to what Lowry had said. They said, quote, supporting even indirectly exclusionary activities is against IBM's practices and policies. You can imagine once they take that step, what are you going to do if you're another company? You've got to drop out too, right? Toyota does. They drop out. They go as far as recommending to people like Lee Trevino, who they sponsor. They say, please don't wear our logo during the tournament. Anheuser-Busch drops. At least six companies drop, six big ones, costing millions of dollars. And a man named Jim Autry, who is the PGA executive director, arguably more powerful than the president, he apparently lost 15 pounds in a three-week period just from the stress. He was quoted at one point as saying, it was disappointing to see the corporate sponsors distance themselves from us so fast. We thought it would have been nice if they had given us a little time to resolve the issue before they pulled out. Well, they weren't going to wait. And I know we keep doing this here, but I thought there was a really interesting part of the Sports Illustrated wrap-up of this whole thing. And this story online is credited to SI staff, so I'm not sure who exactly wrote it. But on the topic of big businesses, here's what they said. Quote, of course, the laughable part of the institution is American businessmen's rushing to distance themselves from exclusionary clubs when, in fact, the structure of racism, sexism, and all-around white male chauvinism in these institutions is primarily the handiwork of, who else, American businessmen. And it is worth noting that even though corporations were quick to run away from Shoal Creek, there were no broad directives telling executives to resign their company-subsidized memberships at clubs guilty of the same practices. End quote. Again, nobody's hands are clean. But now the wheels are in motion big time. And to what extent Riley and the PGA have their hands forced and to what extent they're being proactive is a little bit hard to tell. Even with research and even with hindsight, obviously when people tell their own story, they want to make themselves look like the good guy. But what we know for sure is that Riley issues this letter, which, according to the Washington Post, quote, deplores discrimination and promises to review the PGA's site selection policy. So that's the first time with that letter that basically they're putting other clubs on notice saying, look, we're not going to do this over and over again. It's not going to be an annual occurrence for us. If you don't admit minority and black members, you're going to be out of luck. And Autry, the executive director, says it as clear as can be. He says the courts will ultimately have to decide what private clubs can and cannot do. Our feeling is that racial discrimination will be a factor in our site selection. And this is when they start pushing Hall Thompson to admit a black member at Shoal Creek. And Thompson, probably won't surprise you, says absolutely not. 
seems like the dynamic is that he thinks the PGA of America is basically stuck with him for now. It's too late to move on. So he's going to hold out and basically try to call their bluff. But Riley had different plans. And according to Shoepack, the PGA board members were okay with allowing Shoal Creek to continue hosting. But it was Riley who insisted that they start coming up with contingency plans. Drawing a line in the sand, Riley was prepared to move the championship to another venue if the club did not change its exclusive membership practices. I like Hall Thompson. I think Hall Thompson is a great person. He made a big mistake. I said, Hall, I have a statement here that I want you to sign. And you have one day to sign it. And if it's not signed, we're moving the championship. I said, this is way bigger than the PGA of America. This is way bigger than Hall Thompson and Pat Riley. I says, we're talking about the game of golf. The game's going to suffer. I says, we're not going to let that happen. Dean Beeman confirmed that with Shoepack, that Riley was the main engine of this. And if there's anybody who, who would know it would have been him. And at this point, we get into this kind of brinkmanship situation where Thompson's saying, I'm not doing it. Riley's saying, you're going to lose the PGA if you don't. And it's a matter of who's going to blink first. Autry at the PGA called up Jack Nicholas, asked if Muirfield Village would host on short notice. Nicholas says yes, but within 30 minutes, he calls back and says, no, I can't do it. Thompson had heard about that. Remember, they designed Shoal Creek together, and apparently Thompson called him and, and got to him. Riley then got on the phone with Beeman, PGA Tour Commissioner, and Beeman said, yeah, we'll have it at TPC Sawgrass, no problem. Now, speaking of Beeman and other golf organizations, at this point, they were also starting to make public statements because people are looking to them. In late July, the PGA Tour, which was in the process of growing very quickly and was very successful at that point, said that they would have a new criteria for evaluating host clubs. And Tim Fincham, who was the deputy commissioner at that time, obviously he would soon be the commissioner commissioner, said, quote, we're saying that if we haven't been attuned enough to the situation in the past, now we are going to be. We have to protect the tour, end quote. Grant Spaeth was the president of the USGA then. Jerry Tardy in Golf Digest described him as a rare liberal Democrat among blue-blooded Republicans. Same thing happened with him. He said publicly that the USGA was going to reevaluate membership policies and future championship sites. His quote was, The Shoal Creek issues are not new or confined to Alabama, so however distressing one finds this firestorm, I conclude without question that open debate and decision-making is long overdue, and we are thus provided the opportunity to sort things out fully and fairly, end quote. And at this point, Thompson and Shoal Creek seem to be working on what's a little bit tough to read, but looks almost like a shadow negotiation or maybe even a face-saving measure where they're having these back-channel communications with people like the Birmingham mayor, Richard Arrington, who's black, and offering these assurances that, look, within a year, we're going to have a black member. And maybe they think that's going to satisfy the people protesting, but if that's what they think, they're way off base. Again, the genie is very much out of the bottle. This now has got to come to a head one way or another. The SCLC and the NAACP confirm that. They restate their plans to picket, and TV sponsors continue to drop like flies. There is no easy solution here. There's a funny thing that happens at the PGA of America at this point, which is that they hire a New York City PR firm for crisis management. And the woman hired to help them is Vicki Jordan, who is black, and she's the daughter of Vernon Jordan, a civil rights leader who became famous later of one of Bill Clinton's advisors. But Vicki Jordan, her one of her jobs was to run these mock interviews with Riley. 
to get him ready for his media appearances. And unlike some of Riley's opponents, she knew all about Annandale. And being good at her job, she anticipated that it could become an issue. So they're running these mock interviews, and this black woman, Vicki Jordan, says to this white man, Pat Riley, who works at a club that discriminates, she says, Mr. Riley, have you ever heard of the Emancipation Proclamation? And Riley apparently had a stammer as a kid that he overcame, but this brings it right back. And according to Autry, as Riley tries to answer, he is practically on the verge of hyperventilating. So at that point, they said, okay, Autry is going to handle the interviews. Cannot have Riley in front of a camera. That's not going to work out. But still, even behind the scenes, Riley played a big role in pushing to get a black member invited to Shoal Creek immediately, or else. And the or else is, or else we're going to move the tournament. And apparently Hall Thompson at one point called up the secretary of the PGA to try to gauge how serious this was. You know, are they really going to move it? Is this a real threat? And what he heard back was, Riley is as serious as cardiac arrest. Nine days before the start of the PGA Championship, as July turns to August, Hall Thompson and Shoal Creek fold. They agreed to admit a black man named Louis J. Willie, who is a military veteran, a businessman, head of the Booker T. Washington Insurance Company. This is also the guy who integrated many of the other private clubs in Birmingham over the last decade. And as in many of these cases, they kind of pick someone who is as palatable as possible to the white community. There are these hints that Willie may be hesitant, but he's eventually convinced by the argument that if he doesn't accept, there's going to be racial turmoil in the city. So he'd be doing everybody a favor. And the big question at that point becomes, is this going to fly for the SCLC, especially for Reverend Lowry? PGA of America schedules a press conference in New York City, and right before that, all the major players meet in a conference room in New York. There's Autry, there's Pat Riley, Reverend Lowry is there, and Autry asks Lowry not just to agree not to pick it, but to call up the companies who have boycotted and ask them to reconsider now that Shoal Creek is integrating. And there's some murmur around the table, maybe like some people didn't want to accept it, but Reverend Lowry says, we're going to trust the PGA. All things begin with the first step, and we're going to trust the PGA. Now, there's a really fascinating postscript there. And it forms the end to Shupak's article about Riley. You remember the story of Riley supporting his black teammates when he was a junior in high school when the restaurant in Pittsburgh wouldn't serve them? Well, one of those teammates was Charlie Mitchell. And he was the son of Reverend Isaac Mitchell, a civil rights leader who was close with Lowry. And Isaac Mitchell had read about Shoal Creek and he saw that Riley was involved. And he called up Lowry and told him about what Riley had done that day in high school years and years ago. And his message to Lowry was, trust Pat Riley, he's a good guy. Now, Riley didn't know this story himself for about 20 years after Shoal Creek. And we probably don't know exactly how much influence that may have had on Lowry, but if you like your stories of how, you know, the way you behave in life has reverberations later on, it's hard to beat that one. And another really neat part of that story is that Riley told it to Shupak, but he said he didn't want it to come out until he died, which is exactly how it happened. So, everything works out, in some sense. Willie gets admitted to Shoal Creek. The club promises that they are looking at another black member, reviewing his application. In the end, whoever that member was did not get admitted. But they've integrated, and for the purposes of that year's PGA Championship, 
It looks like that's going to be good enough. There is no picketing. The story disappears. Wayne Grady wins the event. There was even a black player there, Jim Thorpe, who, when he was asked if he would boycott, he said, you know, tell them I've got a family to feed. During that week, Autry and Riley visited Hall Thompson to try to mend fences at Shoal Creek. And Thompson looked at them and said, Pat, I'm not surprised that your gutless executive director, and here he's referring to Autry, who was right in front of him, he goes on, but I thought as a Marine that you were stronger than that. And according to Autry, Riley looked like he wanted to jump across the table and attack him. Instead, they left, and they never spoke again for the rest of their lives. In the aftermath, it is interesting to see the reactions, to see who's happy with this, who isn't so happy. Lee Elder was one of the naysayers. He is, of course, the first black golfer to play in the Masters. You might remember he was an honorary starter in 2021, just months before he passed away. He said, quote, I felt we should go to the very end with this thing. An honorary membership doesn't mean anything. Charlie Owens, a black senior tour player, agreed with him. He said, you need a tub of water and you get a teardrop. It didn't go far enough. On the other side of things, though, philosophically, Jerry Tardy in his Digest write-up had a great quote from the tennis player Arthur Ashe, who wasn't talking about Shoal Creek, but he was talking about this exact kind of situation. And he said, there is nothing wrong with tokenism. It's the easiest and fastest way to begin the process of breaking down the barriers. I tell them, if you don't want to do it for yourself, do it for your sons. And in this case, the effects are the biggest part of the story, the wide ranging effects. It is almost unbelievable, the reckoning that happens after Shoal Creek the most thorough kind of tallying of the consequences that I found comes a, a year later in August 1991 from the Orlando Sentinel, a writer named George White, who wrote, quote, One year after the furor of Shoal Creek, what has happened in the insulated world of golf? One year after the PGA Tour and the USGA demanded that courses either cease their bigotry or lose their tournaments, is the golf world really that much different? The answer would seem to be a resounding yes. And White goes through the aftermath there. Crooked Stick, which was hosting the PGA Championship that year in 91, added a black member so they wouldn't lose the tournament. Augusta National, which remember in 2002, 10 years later, they're going to fight tooth and nail to keep from adding a woman member. They decided they want no part of this. They add a black member in 1990, a business executive named Ron Townsend. And that's to avoid any controversy for their 1991 event. And in classic Augusta fashion, Horde Hardin, the chairman at the time, said no, it had nothing to do with Birmingham. It wasn't a reaction to Shoal Creek at all. But he did admit a little influence. Here's what he said. Quote, we've been discussing it for about a year. Yes, we concluded at least a year ago that there were more black people playing golf, more black people climbing the business ladder, more climbing the scientific and educational ladders, and we realized that there were people in that group who would enjoy being with the people we have as members. I don't want to create the impression that all of our members are enthusiastic about this. Shoal Creek perhaps expedited something that we would have liked to do in our own way. End quote. Other courses wouldn't change, and they got the message that you either adapt or we drop you, and they chose to be dropped. The list is shockingly pretty long. PGA Tour lost Cypress Point, Butler National, which was the host of the Western Open. The senior PGA Tour lost... Wold Warson Country Club in St. Louis, which had a ban on black and Jewish golfers. 
Skokie Country Club in Illinois. The PGA of America dropped Aronimink in Pennsylvania, which was going to host the 93 PGA. And the USGA dropped St. Louis Country Club, Chicago Country Club, Annandale, where Pat Riley worked, and Marion Golf Club in Pennsylvania. And what do you notice about most of these clubs? They are all in the north or in California. Elsewhere, the clubs that were complying were searching desperately for their own black members. O.J. Simpson, who was already at that point a member at Riviera, he became a member at Sherwood Oaks Country Club. And he said, you know, I must admit, I wondered about why I was asked to join and why my name came up in a board meeting now. And then my mind went to the Shoal Creek situation. I would imagine that virtually every club in America must be having conversations about who to tap for minority membership. And he's right. A lot of them were. Today, it has been 34 years since Shoal Creek. But it's not hard to look back on the history and see the profound effect that that PGA championship had on not just transforming the landscape of these private clubs, but transforming the expectations for what would be tolerated. Because clearly this doesn't end racism in golf or exclusive practices or anything like that, but it did drag the whole thing out of the shadows. And if nothing else, it put a price on discrimination. We go back to Jerry Tardy, who in his September 1990 editorial, he quotes Rose Elder, who is the wife of Lee Elder. And I thought she put it perfectly. She said, quote, people have the right in America to form a private club on private property and discriminate in any way against anybody they choose. But the cost of that right is you can't get any tax breaks and you can't host national tournaments. End quote. In other words, you can still do it. There are certain things that will never change, but you better be in the shadows. As for Shoal Creek, by 1994, Louis J. Willie was still the only black member of that club. They wouldn't host another major, didn't get another USGA event until 2008 when things had changed a little. But that year, 1994, they did host the Intercollegiate Championship in the fall. And just to prove that history has a sense of irony, and maybe even a sense of humor too, with Hall Thompson watching on, a freshman from Stanford won the individual title. And I don't think I have to tell you that golfer's name. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. The song today was Just Walking by Lobo Loco. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts. And we've got two others for you to check out, too. Golf Digest Weekly Podcast is called The Loop. That's really good. And there's a brand new podcast on golf instruction called Golf IQ, and that's with Luke Kurdanin. Both are out now. You can subscribe to both. Thank you very much for listening. Have a wonderful day.